This is another interview brought to you by TheBatmanUniverse.net. Hi, this is Stephen Hill, game director on Batman Arkham Asylum. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, I'm Brandon Vietti, director of Under the Red Hood. Hi, this is Gail Simone. Hi, this is James Tucker. Hi, I'm Dan Jurgens. Hi, this is Bruce Tim. This is Michael Jelinek from The Brave and the Bold. Hi, this is Andrea Romano. Hi, my name's Dan DeDeal. Hi, my name's Claiborne Moore with the C.S. Moore Studio. Hi, this is Jim Lee. This is Kevin Conroy. Hey, it's Sean DiMaggio. Hello, everyone. I'm Batman, and you're listening to my podcast. specials today we have with us two guys who have been working on uh, a book for quite some time it's called the bat cave companion it's michael yuri and michael cronenberg welcome guys thank you thank you good to be here so i guess we should first start off with uh tell us a little bit about the book uh yeah well this is michael yuri and uh i am the co-writer and uh editor of the book and uh it basically is a look at Batman's history through two very influential periods of comics, the New Look period of the 1960s and the uh, Creature of the Night uh, period of the uh, Bronze Age, the 1970s. Uh, we do this through um, a number of essays, very incisive essays about the, uh, the comics, uh, oftentimes uh, peppered with a lot of different uh, interview quotes. And we have a few Q&A interviews with uh, uh, four creators who uh, were influential in Batman mythos. And also we have a number of uh, added features like uh, sidebars to, to fill in some gaps or to cover a few things that, uh, that were interesting and important, but maybe not quite so uh, important that they get an entire chapter. And we also have, and this is, a, I think, a really important feature of the book, uh, a, a detailed issue by issue index of both Batman and Detective Comics, and that means from 1964 through 1979. You mentioned that there's different chapters. As far as the chapters, how are they broken down? Uh, the, well, the, the book itself is actually, it, it flows chronologically. So uh, the very first chapter is about the so-called new look, which of course is the rebooting of Batman in 1964, when uh, Julius Schwartz, who had previously been successful in relaunching um, The Flash and Green Lantern and a few other superheroes, got called in by the big boss, along with Carmine Infantino, and they were told that Batman and detective sales were suffering. They, they said that the books were on the chopping block. Whether or not that is true that, or that was used for uh, dramatic effect uh, remains to be seen and will probably never fully be answered. But nonetheless, uh, that's what these gentlemen were told, that they were going to cancel the books unless they turned them around in six months. So they uh, were charged with the mission of uh, reinvigorating Batman. And uh, that's what they did. I'm, I'm digressing here. Hello. Uh, the, the chapters will... Uh, uh, I'm having a senior moment. I, after reading uh, hundreds of Batman comics, you don't have to excuse me. Um, uh, the, the chapters basically chronologically cover this, this metamorphosis of Batman. And, and the, uh, the, these two periods that we focus on in the book, they're, they're very significant from, I think, a, a cultural standpoint. Because in the 1960s, uh, the the new look, which was quickly followed by the the Adam West TV show and Batmania, that 
really brought Batman and superhero merchandising uh, uh, to a very broad and very wide, not only a domestic but international audience. And then in the 70s, uh, with the, the darkening of Batman, that, that was just so influential because not only did it sort of return Batman from whence he came, but it also more or less created the Batman that we know today. And let me ask you, how, how did both of you start working on these different projects? Um, well, it actually started with, with, with Michael Urey. He um, had proposed to uh, John Morrow, to Morrow's Publishing, three companion books, um, Superman, uh, Batman, and Justice League. And um, Justice League was first, correct, Michael? That's right. And then, and he, and then he did the Superman companion. And um, he was going to do the Batman companion, and I had no idea that um, he had already proposed that to, uh, to John, and I had proposed on my own to John Morrow, a, a, bat, a Batman companion-type book. John went ahead and talked to Michael about it, and Michael wanted to go ahead and have somebody else work with him on it, and it actually worked out really well because Michael grew up with that 60s Batman, the new look Batman and the the TV show Batman, and he had a fondness for that. And for me, it was the 1970s Batman. It was uh, seeing Neil Adams and Danny, seeing Neil Adams' art and reading Danny O'Neill's stories that really put the hook in me to read comic books as a kid. So uh, that's where I began reading comic books, and, and, and that Batman of that period uh, holds a special place for me. So um, the book is in two, diff- two different sections, even though it's chronological. Uh, Michael handles the, uh, the 60s part, and I worked on the 70s. What did you guys hope to accomplish by putting this book out? Well, I, I think it's an interesting look at the the behind the scenes mechanics of what made Batman special during these two periods. Uh, oftentimes, when you have a, a broader history book, and there have been quite a few, they cover the broad strokes, and and they have to do that for uh, the I think the mass market. But with this, even though I, I think. Uh, this is written and designed, and very nicely designed by Michael Cronenberg, uh, designed in a fashion that will appeal to the mass market. It goes into more detail behind the scenes of um, the, the specifics of what it was like at, say, DC Comics or in the marketplace or even in, in the world uh, when, when these stories were being created and, and how the world influenced the Batman stories and vice versa. And, and these are things that you would not necessarily find in just, say, a, a general article in a magazine or a blog uh, or, uh, and again, a, a broader mass market book. We really get into some of the nitty-gritty as to why the stories were told. And, and to me, as I've, as I've done this kind of project now for several years and also edited Back, back Issue magazine, I, I've developed more of a, an acute appreciation for the stories behind the stories because oftentimes they're a heck of a lot more fascinating than, uh, than <laughs> what you read. <laughs> this, this, these two eras for Batman really shape the consciousness of how people look at Batman. People often think about, when they think about Batman, they, depending on their age, or they think of either Batman as Adam West TV show in the 60s, or they're going to think of Batman as the Dark Knight. And the way 
Batman was shaped and how he is today comes from what Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams and Julia Schwartz started in 1970. You know, and uh, oftentimes um, our listeners are always surprised of how long a process takes for any projects that you, you we might have discussed on here. How long did this book take from start to finish? I think we started in 1915, wasn't it, Michael? Before we were born. Right. <laughs> you're, you're talking about two guys who sat and read, you know, every Batman and detective comic from 64 to 79. So what? But it was it was like almost three years, right? Yeah, I guess from start to finish. It it uh, it, it takes a while to do one of these books, just uh, just the general research of them. And uh, this one was so dense just because of the, the wealth of material. I mean, there, there's sidebar material and some mention of other things like Justice League, Brave and the Bold, World's Finest, and some peripheral matters too, just because especially in the 60s when Batman was so immensely popular, uh, he was all over the place, uh, as was Robin. So, yeah, we, we read all that material, and that, that was uh, a lot to research. And um, the book had a, a couple of setbacks. Uh, the first one was, you know, Michael Cronenberg and I are busy with other projects. I mean, this, this is one of many things that we do. And it was just taking us longer to produce it, so we asked our publisher to delay the book uh, so we could have more time to nurture it because the last thing you want to do with a book that's important and, and this thorough is to, to rush it. Secondly, we did have it on the schedule for last spring, and then we were asked by DC Comics to delay it so as not to compete with or overclutter the market last year when DC and other publishers were uh, producing tons of Batman stuff in connection with the Dark Knight movie. So in retrospect, that gave us, uh, I think, more time to, to finesse it. And additionally, it's actually kind of cool. It's coming out now in 2009 because that's the 70th anniversary of Batman. So we, we get to, uh, just by happenstance, enjoy a little bit of that significance. You mentioned that you guys read every single comic during those periods. Besides the comics themselves, what other research did you use for the creation of this book? Well, we both talked to a number of creators, and not only with the, the four Q&As, which are in the book, Michael interviewed Carmine Infantino and Joe Giella, and I interviewed Neil Adams and Benny O'Neill, but we spoke to, I, I know it was harder for Michael because a lot of the guys had, had passed away. Who were doing uh, yeah, there were, there were hardly anybody, anybody who's <laughs> hardly left alive for me to, to, to actually talk to personally. I mean, sadly, I don't mean to make light of that. It's just a reality when you're looking back at material published 40 years ago, uh, by guys who were middle-aged at the time, obviously, you know, you're, you're not going to have uh, many people who are available to you to, to speak firsthand. You know, there were there, there's other things. There's, there's, there's various books, magazine articles. Uh, but I, I think, for, for me, some of the greatest stuff was just being able to talk to the different creators. I mean, even though <clears throat> I didn't do a Q&A with each one of them, their quotes are, are peppered throughout. And the information that they were able to provide me, I was able to use within you know, the essays that I wrote. Well, as far as you guys went back, I'm pretty sure you heard of it. I know there's a lot of Batman fans, especially the fans that read the comic books. They always talk about in conversation about the Bob King, Bill Finger controversy. What are your opinions on that? Well, Michael should address that because he has written a magnificent chapter about that. It's great. Yeah, everybody's going to remember this chapter after they read the book. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that, Michael. Uh, and and you know, basically, uh, my my 
we, we, we both uh, decided that we wanted to team up because our first names were Michael, and we knew that in in interviews it would be really confusing for people to figure <laughs> out who's who. But uh, but that said, I am very proud of. I, I will admit the uh, the chapter seven in the book is called "The Ghost of Gotham," and it's about not only Bill Finger but also Sheldon. Moldoff, because as you are alluding, um, and as uh, any Batman fan worth his salt or his utility belt knows, that uh, essentially uh, Bob Kane's byline was plastered on you know, virtually every Batman story for a long, long time. And I read as many different articles about this as I could. I, I dug through um, another source I should have mentioned earlier uh, that I used for research were old Batmania uh, fanzines. These were like you know, mimeograph, really uh, low-budget fanzines that were produced in the 60s that uh, were more or less, I guess, you know, the, the blogs of, uh, of the day. And they were fanzines, a collection of fanzines that were gathered and distributed um, and they were produced by people who were at that time on their own dime, just for the heck of it, you know, contacting creators, uh, going to what few conventions existed, and and reporting. And looking back at some of this stuff, you can you can really find information that really was never publicized by DC Comics, or if you I guess you dig into Marvel fan scenes, you'll find the same about Marvel. I dug up a couple of tidbits from them as well, but. Bob Kane, you know, a, a lot. He, he's an easy target, and because of his his ego, and because of the deal that he had with DC, um, many people, particularly Finger, sort of languished under his shadow, uncredited. I really wanted to paint a fair portrayal, though, and this was the most challenging chapter. I worked on it very, very hard. I think that without reading the chapter. <laughs> Uh, allowed. I, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I gave Moldoff and Finger their due without detracting from the significance of Bob Kane's contributions, and there were some. I, I think it's easy to just dismiss Kane, or a lot of people want to, because they sympathize with the the uncredited folks. But um, you know, sometimes too, people get into work for higher agreements, and they're they know what the scenario is going into it, and and they produce work under those uh, agreements. And yeah, you know, I, I think today ego and and credit is, is something that um, you know is more an issue than it was for some of these fellows. The finger, I mean, finger was a tragic figure. You know, he died uh, an alcoholic and a, a very very bitter man, and on. Uh, a couple of occasions, as reported in Batmania magazine, too, he blew the lid off of some of this stuff back in the 60s and uh, and started to make claims at that point about how he had created the uh, the iconic imagery that we really know is Batman's, uh, you know, the, the pointy ears on the cow, the the scalloped bat cape, the uh, the gauntlets with the bat wings, the utility belt, um, Robin, and um, all these things. And uh, I, I think that I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what people are going to think about what when they read that chapter. Well, I'm I'm eager to read that chapter. I'm, I love I love that part of history of Batman. Just I guess from the history that you guys covered between the the periods of 64 and 79, who would you say had the biggest impact on Batman's history during that time frame? Well, for the 70s, I'll just speak about the 70s since that's 
that's the part of the book that I wrote. It's got to be, you know, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. I love what uh, Engelhardt did and what Rogers did, but to me, it's those two guys got the ball rolling. Uh, certainly, Julius Schwartz contributed also, but um, I think Adams specifically, with him starting um, to darken the character and braving the bull in the late 60s, doing it when Bob Haney's scripts read it one way and Neil started drawing Batman another way. Um, and then the demand you know, from fandom, wanting Batman to go back to the character that he originally was supposed to be, which is a creature of the night, and strike fear into criminals' hearts. So um, once he teamed up with, uh, Neil Adams teamed up with Denny O'Neill, you know, that's pretty much the Batman that we have today. Uh, so for me, it would be those two guys, without a doubt. I, uh, I'll even single out Neil Adams um, as being the most influential Batman uh, contributor maybe ever. Um, and I have nothing but tremendous respect for, you know, Sheldon Moldoff and Joe Giella and Carmine Infantino, uh, you know, Murphy Anderson, Dick Giordano, Julie Schwartz, uh, Engelhart and uh, Rogers, you know, at the end of the 70s. I mean, they, they definitely uh, uh, put some new lifeblood into it. But, but Adams just came along at the right time. He came along at a time when Batman was suffering a bit after that that tremendous surge of popularity in the mid to late 60s during that big Batmania boom. And then when, when that fizzled out, you know, fans left in, in huge numbers, and they didn't know what to do with Batman again at DC. And then Adams, had, they, they still didn't quite know, but Adams kind of showed them the way. Like uh, Michael said, uh, he was sneaking in this darker Batman by elongating the cape and the ears and stuff and, and braving the bold. And, and um, he finally got his chance to do Batman. And then, then coupled with uh, the stories of the, a more gothic nature that Denny O'Neill was writing with Neil Adams at that time, and these guys weren't necessarily paired originally either. I mean, uh, the Julie Schwartz method of editing comics was, okay, here's your script, which Julie had co-plotted with the writer, and then, okay, let's see who's here for the assignment, you know, who's available. And then it was just good fortune. When I talked to Denny, he um, he never knew that Neil was going to do, particularly, you know, the, um, the first, you know, Creature of the Night story of, of Batman and, and Detective Comics, The uh, Secret of the Waiting Graves. He had no idea Neil Adams was going to draw that. Um, I don't. I don't even know if he necessarily really thought knew Neil Adams was going to do that first Joker story when he brought the Joker back to being a, a killer again. You know, the, the funny he, thing about this, uh, Denny will actually tell you too. He he jokes about this. He'll he'll say, "I'm often asked, you know, what was it like to work with Neil Adams?" And Denny says something along the lines of, uh, I, "I I wish the heck I knew," because they. Again, it was rare that they actually, you know, worked specifically together. Uh, for the Krypton Companion, the Superman book that I did before this, uh, I interviewed Denny, and we were talking about Neil and his relationship with Neil. And the only time those two really kind of sat down together uh, to, to, to nurture a project together was a Superman versus Muhammad Ali project. They, they were both sort of uh, you know, to, in tandem on that one, or at least working together on that one. They, I don't know if they were necessarily in tandem at all times. But, um, yeah, usually it was an assignment. I mean, Denny would write the script, and then it ended up in Neil's lap. And, and, but, you know, those guys, you would think that they were in the same room together. 
because they just had this chemistry, and it's just to our good fortune that that chemistry did exist. I will also go ahead and credit Neil Adams on that one because as a kid growing up, as a kid growing up in the in the seventies and and eighties, Neil Adams' artwork was plastered everywhere. He was on my towels. He was on Cubs. He he was just everywhere. And that's how, as a young Batman fan growing up, that's who I knew who Neil Adams was because of his art style. But um, what parts of the publication history of Batman stand out to you both from from doing your research? There are a lot. You know, there's this Batman has been remarkably resilient. Um, I I think it's, you know, in, in recent decades, he has more or less been returned to his roots as a, as a dark knight. But, you know, depending upon the, the day, the writer, uh, you know, there are a lot of interpretations. And now here we go back on uh, Cartoon Network again. We have uh, kind of a, you know, swinging 60s uh, type Batman in uh, Batman the Brave and the Bold. He, he's sort of like James Bond with the cowl. He, uh, he can adapt to different um, uh, eras. And, and still work as long as you don't stray too far. And so I think out of our particular eras, I mean, we, we really pinpointed the two publication eras that were not only influential to us because they're the eras that got us as kids. I mean, I was a, a little kid in the 60s when all this campy stuff was going on, and then I was uh, becoming a teenager uh, when Adams was influential, when you guys were, you know, buying towels, I was. This was the point when I could have aged out of comics, and uh, Adams kept me in because his, his stuff was just so darn amazing. But, well, I, um, and, and the and the first comic that I actually even remember getting and looking at and being impressed with the art, and I was just a little kid, was um, Daughter of the Demon. I mean, that just that just knocked me out. And as a kid who wanted to be an artist and just seeing, so I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd, I'd never been a real comic book follower. I liked, I looked at comics here and there, but that comic definitely hit me hard. And you know, Batman has nipples. That was that's one thing that Neil Adams gave him. Which Julius um, Schwartz was Julius Schwartz was quite alarmed about. <laughs> Neil told me. Um, and and I, I you know you guys were talking about Neil Adams uh, I, you know the the interview that I was able to do with Neil up in his studio um, we go over every single uh, story that he drew from Brave and the Bold all the way through Batman so I think I'm hoping that that's maybe those detailed Batman interview with uh, with Neil Adams yeah uh, I mean we we are, we're fair and 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 we cover a lot of different people's contributions to Batman, but out of our 240-page book, Neil Adams gets more pages and more ink, and I think deservedly so. And again, not to not to you know, denigrate or, or diminish the work of anyone else, but uh, also I actually envy Michael Cronenberg's interview with Neil Adams in the regard that these guys sat across a table with comics, you know, really talking about specifics, whereas uh, for the other interviews uh, that, that he did and also the ones that I did uh, on the telephone, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's very good and organic, but also when you're dealing with work that goes even farther back, you know, memories grow dim over time, and, uh, and so sometimes you just can't get the kind of, uh, you know, minutiae and, and, and embellishments that, that Michael got out of Neil. I mean, really, really... Uh, 
amazing interview. Now, were you guys Batman fans growing up? Oh, man, I was. I, I was um, in 1966, and uh, I date myself here, but I really don't care. I'm, not, I'm, I'm past the point now where I'm uh, <laughs> ashamed of my age. I'm 51. <laughs> so uh, in 66, I was an 8-year-old. I was in the third grade, and I absolutely went insane over Batman. And I was the, you know, the target audience for that camp. And I would get ticked off at my parents when they were laughing at the Batman TV show because I was taking this stuff really, really seriously. And I remember calling my dad one day when I got home from school. I begged him on his way home to stop and pick up a Batman comic book for me, and he did. It was, uh, I remember this to this day. It was Detective Comics number 350 with one of the most idiotic Batman villains ever, the Monarch of Menace. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he, of course, is in the Batcave Companion, too, because we do uh, a villain's um, index as well for, for both sections, both the, uh, the New Age villains and the Bronze Age villains, uh, which uh, gives a brief uh, bio of the villain and uh, lists all the appearances and, and their powers and gimmicks and things like that. I remember that well. And uh, it, so that, that's the Batman that at least makes me feel like a kid again. And, and, uh, and that was the section that I ended up researching and, and writing in our book. Well, for for me, it was it was the 1970s Batman, and it was and it was Neil, and it was Neil's art, because um, I remember going to a 7-Eleven, no comic book stores, you know, in the in the early 70s when I was a little kid, and um, picking up uh, Batman 232, Daughter of the Demon, seeing that cover, and just being totally engrossed. I mean, it really put the hook in me for Batman, and without a doubt, I'm a Batman freak. Um, he's always been my favorite character. Um, and throughout, I'm still buying Batman comics. I never stop. But for the 70s, Batman is still my favorite. And that's probably because, you know, that's the one I kind of grew up with. But, you know, meeting Neil was uh, was great, was fantastic. And, and talking to these other creators was fantastic because those were the comics that I really loved. I mean, he was, Batman as a character was, was number one for me. It was always number one. So doing this project, every minute of it for me was like a labor of love. It was great. I enjoyed every single minute. Now, a lot of people, I, I know for instance ourselves, we, we have a website, we, we do a lot of stuff, and we obviously don't have a book like you guys, but we, we, we've learned that the more research you do, the more enthralled you get with the characters. Now, do you guys feel, based on all the research that you put into reading all the comics that you might not have necessarily read back in the day when you guys were kids, do you feel more, I guess, enthralled with the character now more so than before? I, I do. I'm not, I know I'm not burned out in any way. I mean, I, I loved it. And in fact, I, I think I gained a greater appreciation for the, for, for the 70s stories, Batman stories, that weren't the ones that necessarily are reprinted constantly, which are usually Neil's stories, Danny's stories, Marshall Rogers, and Steve Englehart's stuff. Some of the other stuff that was, you know, David Reed, and Ernie Chan, and, uh, you know, and picking up a new appreciation for some of the artists. A, a guy who, um, like Irv Novick, who, uh, you know, did so many stories. So I, I think I got, I, I, I got an even greater appreciation for that time period, and um, definitely ready to do more. <laughs> I, I will agree with, with Michael Cronenberg, too. It, um, when, when you look at these comics, that you read as uh, as a kid and as a teen, uh, when you look at them with a more critical eye, and then uh, you know, as through an adult's perspective, it, it is easier to 
develop a whole different type of appreciation for them. It, it goes beyond you know, the, the Spanish appreciation. You still keep that. That kind of juices you along. But you start to look at the craft, and you start to realize what these guys did that, that really made the character special for that particular time. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Irv Novick. He's and um, uh, maybe my second favorite Batman artist of the uh, Bronze Age was Jim Aparo. You know, I, I was a big fan of The Brave and the Bold. I always thought it was just really cool. You know, every issue to team Batman up with somebody else, and 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 that was fun. And um, and that was also my gateway to some other you know uh, B level, C level, T level characters in the DC universe. I uh, was through that. But Jim Aparo's stuff back in the oh early to mid '70s on that title was absolutely astounding. I mean, and some of the best Batman art of all time. And and by his own admission, he said that he was uh, drawing it in the Adams vein because that's what he was asked to do. But he embellished it with his own style, uh, and it it was just amazing. Even to where he would work things like sound effects into. And to the art, uh, you know, very, very cleverly, uh, cleverly, excuse me, rather than just sort of, you know, plastering them onto the page. And Apero actually did his own lettering and inking. I mean, this was a guy who would get a script, and and you'd get the book back, uh, just you know, shy of coloring and and ready for print. He was amazing. Uh, I just wanted, to, I just wanted to agree totally with with Michael about Apero. Um, I mean, we we do cover him, and he's in the '70s book where talk about, even though we're talking mainly about Batman and Detective Comics, uh, uh, his work on the Bat Murderer series with Len Wein, and uh, his work with Archie Goodwin in Detective, and I mean, it was just fantastic work. I wish I could have seen more of it. That's one thing I think I wish I, I wish we could have seen more of Aparo's work in, in Batman and Detective, but I mean, he was just so busy in Brave and the Bold, and it, and it was great to know that you could count on his art. Pretty much every month, already talking about already some of the you know some of the favorite artists and of course you know we share those favorite artists. <laughs> uh, what do you, what about the writers that y'all did? Of course, from Denny, what what, what were uh, some of the writing the best writing the writers that you liked or the best writer material that they did? Um, well, I, I I love what Steve Englehart did. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with that. It's you know, it's been reprinted a million times, but. I love what he did. I loved him bringing that kind of almost Marvel sensibility in a, in a way to the character and bringing a real depth of realism um, to the character. So I love that. I, I liked I liked what Len Wein did also. Um, I liked some of the horror elements that he brought in. And as far as the 60s, you know, um, you know, Bill Finger wrote a number of stories in the 60s and, and so forth. You know, I like what Jeff Loeb did with uh, with Jim Lee and the Hush the Hush series. And uh, I like a lot of the stuff that's going on today. Um, not all of it, but I like a number of a number of things. But '70s still holds a special place for me as far as uh, the Batman story. So I really like the writers and during that period. Even like David Reed, who who, who not many people remember. Um, I like a number of his stories also. And he's a guy who dates back um, to the '50s. He was draw he was writing Batman in the '50s, and he was writing things as diverse as the Jackie Gleason show and Phil Silver's show and he was doing radio and he was writing Pulse and he did Batman of Many Nations I believe he wrote back in the 50s which Grant Morrison just pulled uh, and used in his uh, recent storyline for Batman and then uh, David Reed came back in the in the 70s and he became Batman's regular writer in both Batman and Detective Comics so I liked his stuff too but uh, well yes Schwartz had uh, four writers initially uh, Ed Heron, John Broom Gardner Fox and Bill Finger, and each of them brought, uh, I think, a little, you know, something special to to Batman. 
Broom was the, the first one on Detective Comics and the first New Luck story. And what's actually kind of funny about this is uh, Schwartz and, and John Broom really did not know Batman at all. It's evidenced by the fact that at the end of the story, Batman grabs one of the crook, crook's guns and holds a gun on uh, the criminals he just apprehended. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty non-Batman. Yeah. But uh, these guys grew into it and brought their own nuances to the character. I guess uh, the next question is, what, what can we expect from you guys in the future as far as different projects? Well, we're actually uh, fighting crime together now. Um, <laughs> we, we've been training in, in my basement. And, uh, yeah, it, the, the, the support beams don't quite work as well as bat poles, but, you know, you can kind of dream, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, I'll give you a serious answer. Um, I'm, I've been working uh, as editor for quite a few years now on a magazine from Tomorrow's called Back Issue, which looks at comics of the 70s and 80s. Uh, Michael Cronenberg is uh, the cover designer, and he occasionally writes articles for that, so we keep plugging along with Back Issue. Uh, number 33 just came out about two weeks ago. I have this summer another book from Tomorrow's, uh, the second edition, the revised edition of Captain Action, the original superhero action figure, and uh, a character that just will not go away. This guy just keeps coming back time and time again. The original book was published in 2002. This updated one is now seven years later, and it's full color, hardcover. And Mr. Cronenberg is actually designing the second edition, so we're working together again. As Michael said, that's actually on my computer screen right now is the, the Captain Action book that I'm working on. Um, mm. I designed the uh, EC archives. For, for Genstone. I'm also the designer for Rough Stuff magazine, uh, which is actually coming up on its last issue. It seems to me that you guys worked on Batcave Companion. One of you guys grew up in the 60s. You worked on the 60s period. One of you guys grew up in the 70s. You worked on the 70s period. Now, do you think there could be a chance somewhere down the line where we, where we get a maybe a Batcave Companion Volume 2, which has maybe some of the 80s, possibly some of the early 90s in it? I I'm ready to, ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready yeah, to go. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've never really stopped reading Batman, and um, the um, late 80s and early 90s is a period that where I was relatively close to the character. Um, I was an editor at DC Comics during that time, and never worked directly on Batman, but I did indirectly. Um, I, I was hired in 89, the year of the first Batman movie, by three editors. They were called group editors at the time, Denny O'Neill, um, Mike Carlin, and Andy Helfer, and I worked on books under all three of them. And I didn't do that much with Denny. Uh, I worked more with Carlin and then some with Helper. But um, yeah, but Denny, I did uh, write the detective letters column for a while, which is actually kind of cool. And uh, that was back during mainly the uh, the Norm Brayfogle era of Batman. And uh, Graham Nolan was drawing um, uh, Detective, I think. And uh, and it was just fun stuff. Occasionally, Jim Apero would do a story as well. A, uh, but you know. The 80s, too, is kind of an interesting time. You've got Dark Knight, obviously, um, Batman and the Outsiders, and Killing Joke. Mm -hmm. But the Killing Robin, too, is another thing. Yeah, <laughs> Death in the Family. Joe, whether he lives or dies, that was actually a pretty interesting period. Yeah. The 80s are, are quite eventful for Batman. 
Now, what do you guys think of the, the current direction of the comics? I liked what Grant Morrison did. Um, I've enjoyed, you know, this kind of run. I, I have to say that I think um, the whole thing with uh, Final Crisis, I find a bit head-scratching and confusing. But I did like, um, I did enjoy Batman R.I.P., I have to say that. And I like what Grant Morrison did. And I like how he brought back a lot of what was going on in the 60s and tied it into, um, into the story. Uh, some of those crazy science fiction stories that Batman was going through in the uh, in the early 60s. Uh, I also enjoyed um, what uh, Jeff Loeb and, and Jim Lee did with Hush. I thought that was terrific. And when I, in fact, when I talked to Neil Adams about about that particular series, uh, he thought it was the best stuff he had seen in Batman in many years. I mean, he really enjoyed what Jim Lee was doing. Uh, I just, I, I agree with uh, Mr. Cronenberg about uh, Grant Morrison. I, I think he has a really good uh, feel for the character uh my my preference for batman stories are, are ones that are either self-contained or uh you know self-contained story arcs um yeah i i, I too have a, a hard time with uh batman being part of uh the tapestry of the broader dc universe i, I love team-ups don't get me wrong as i mentioned earlier i profess my love for the brave and the bold even in its uh current uh incarnation but I just, you know, when, whenever there's an earth-shattering uh, cosmos, uh, you know, disrupting crisis, you know, Batman's not necessarily the, your, your go-to guy. And, and th those things tend to happen with such regularity. I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little tired of that as a, as a lifetime reader. I, I would prefer just to read stories about the characters and occasionally them teaming up but for uh, a singular mission rather than something you know cosmic or uh apocalyptic yeah let's you know i like batman grounded you know um and and that's one of the reasons that i love the batman stories of the 70s so much is i think that those guys went back to you know his roots in, in 39 and where finger and, and kane pulled their ideas for batman from and that was from the shadow from the pulps and so i like I like that version of Batman, and that's like Michael, like Michael Urey said. He works better grounded in rea in some reality, uh, whatever that Gotham City reality is going to be. But um, but who can't love the the alien Batman and the and the zebra Batman though? That is fifties, uh, <laughs> early sixties. Yeah, well, you know, and Grant and Grant did a great job of of of, of pulling that in. To the story and making it this, you know, kind of uh, LSD trip, you know, and yeah. Goes Speaking of LSD trips, let me let me plug something in the Batcave Companion uh, because uh, I interview Mike Allred uh, and his brother Lee, and uh, you are probably aware. A few years ago, when DC was publishing that series called Solo, that Allred had a spotlight, and uh, he did a story called Batman a Go Go. And it basically was sort of a what if the Adam West type Batman uh, kind of got booted into a, a, a Dark Knight type reality, and uh, it was really interesting. I mean, Aunt Harriet's ear was severed and cut to Batman, <laughs> sent to Batman <laughs> or Bruce Wayne uh, as, as a warning, and uh, it just things got worse and worse after that. But uh, yeah, uh, already included some uh, really goofy, um, you know. Batman imagery and characters and a montage sequence uh, from from characters from the early 60s, uh, stuff that predated the, the new look, stuff that actually kind of uh, caused the new look to be necessary, 
because people just weren't connecting with with that material. I mean, and back then they were actually trying to replicate the success of Superman's science fiction uh, stories and and Superman's expanding family in Batman, and it just uh, I mean it gave us a couple of interesting characters, but by and large. I think history looks at it as more or less a failure. But still, right. I really do like Batmite. <laughs> <laughs> we really want to thank you guys for coming on and answering all of the questions that not only we wanted to know, but also the listeners wanted to know as well. I want to remind everybody, go pick up the book. It comes out Sunday, April 15th. It'll be at bookstores. You can get it on Amazon. You can even get it over at the Tomorrow's website itself. So check it out. And thank you again, guys. Thank you for having us. Tune in tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel.